Growing up in New York City in a musical environment that included a father who was a professional bassist, along with a mother and sister who made careers as vocalists, Michael Linhart seemed destined to find his own path into the world of music. Having studied a variety of instruments as a young child, Michael turned his attention to the trumpet when he was only 10 years old and never looked back. And now, at only 38 years old, Michael has already established himself as a first call studio and touring musician, producer, and solo artist. Having performed with countless artists, including Michael McDonald, Boz Skaggs, Yoko Ono, David Byrne, James Brown, Ringo Starr, Eric Clapton, Levon Helm, Fish, Steve Winwood, and so many others, not to mention what has turned out to be a 16-year career with Steely Dan and Donald Fagan. It's a wonder how he's managed to find the time to produce seven stellar solo projects. And to top it off, he recently co-produced Donald Fagan's Sunken Condos. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome Michael Linhart. Hey, Michael, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for yeah. coming. Hey, Michael, it's no surprise that, uh, you know, your career has, you know, it, it took a musical path, and as you come from a great f- musical family that was indoctrinating you with probably since you grew up, um, anyone who has followed your road with Steve Dan also knows your sister, Carolyn, who, uh, right. who is one of the singers, of course, in the touring band right now. And let's dig down deep uh, about your dad, you know, Jay. He was a, a jazzer bassist, uh, you know, who also led a career yes, in, in music. Uh-huh. So tell us a little bit about, uh, about your family a little bit. Well, my dad grew up in Baltimore, one of six kids. Mm-hmm. All the kids were very musical, three boys, three girls. And I'm here at my studio, actually, in New York, and looking, looking at the, one of the banjos that he played, I think, when he was about 12 or 13 with his older brother. Mm-hmm. And I think they were on one of the NBC shows before he started playing up at bass. Wow. He was very precocious and was playing banjo <laughs> um, on one of those afternoon NBC shows, and they were just already sort of touring by the time they were 12 or 13, I think. And wow. his brother was maybe 14 <laughs> or 15. And just everybody in that house, all six kids wound up being very musical. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you know, your dad not only played with some of the greatest names in jazz on the New York City scene, but but like you, he performed uh, for quite a diverse array of players. And <laughs> a couple that come to mind that we learned about was, uh, <laughs> you know, even Ozzy Osbourne and James Taylor. <laughs> I don't think I knew about Ozzy Osbourne, but I'm not surprised. Yeah, James Taylor <laughs> I knew because James Taylor had come over to the house for rehearsals, and uh-huh. they kind of hit it off because my dad started writing songs when he was in his late 30s and singing them. So they sort of connected as singer-songwriters in, in that way. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you were, you were born and raised in New York City, and, and you, know, you continue to call this home, but uh, just, you know, living in New York City and being surrounded by such an incredible music scene there, I mean, how do you feel just being there in New York City shaped who you are as a musician? Uh, I think growing up in New York is pretty insane. I didn't know it, but now that I have a son... Uh, and raising him in, in the same city, it's just, if you put your creative tentacles out, you're going to hit all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it really is, you know, one of the five or six mechas in the world creatively, so you can go, you know, different than L.A. or something, you can walk around Greenwich Village or walk around Brooklyn and hear go to five or six different clubs. You can monitor all these different musical scenes, art scenes, literature scenes, dance scenes, film. It's just everything. It's a big boiling pot. Mm-hmm. So, you know, growing up at the time I was going out by myself and was choosing the place I wanted to go and hang out, it's 
one scene connects to another, and you're all of a sudden immersed in all these different incredible scenes with people from different generations, people up and coming in their late teens, 20s, to people who are 70, 80, and 90. I remember going to jazz clubs and seeing young players next to Doc Cheatham, who was then like 91 or something, playing trumpet. I mean, I didn't quite grasp it until I was probably out of high school, but the the, the depth of it, because New York was where I grew up, so it was kind of, you know, people from outside would say, oh, do you play in a marching band? I said, no way, I don't play in a marching band. There's no place to march. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, well, you you mentioned just a couple seconds ago that... uh, through the influence of your father and family, that you started out learning, you know, several instruments. Of course, he played some. But you also started at an early age. I mean, you started playing keyboards, drums, violin. But you picked up uh, the trumpet, like, I believe, when you were 10 or uh, around that age. You know, what right. was what was it about the trumpet that, uh, that you sort of hung on to? I had played a little violin. I played violin for maybe six months and didn't like my excuses. I didn't like it. I had to stand up and play, which clearly was... Crap or something. I mean, it felt like it was a real excuse in the beginning, but it couldn't have been because you had to play, down to play trumpet. Then I was playing drums, and I, and I liked it, but it didn't feel right. And I said, I think I told my dad, I was about 10, I said, I want to play probably saxophone mm-hmm. or trumpet. And in my mind, I thought that saxophone would be too loud. And I, I still, to this day, don't know where I got that. <laughs> <laughs> but so maybe because I thought you know, maybe because my, my mom loved my own thing. Uh-huh. Maybe I thought that since you put in the harmony, you the trumpet would in fact be kind of you know softer. Right. So my dad said, "Are you really serious about this?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." So he said, "Okay, tomorrow I'll go down and get you a student trumpet." And looking back, it wasn't he didn't call you know like Miles Davis or someone and like get a million dollar trumpet. He, we went down. And we got a $150 con trumpet and took me to Manny's on 48th Street, Manny's Music. And I got the horn. I was so excited. And he, he said, take it out. And we went in the back of the car. And he let me, you know, I started playing in the back seat. <laughs> and it was really, uh, he, once he knew I was serious about the trumpet, he really gave me, you know, all the support that I, he had always given me support, but my mother and father just said, go for it. Yeah. And something about the trumpet, initially, you know, it, it came kind of easily. The first uh, three months came easily. And then I started hitting, you know, around the five, six, seven-month mark, I started hitting the, the difficulties that arise with all trumpet players in terms of endurance and range and yeah. uh, strength. But I clearly identified with the trumpet. And I think that's why, even though I've had ups and downs and periods, you know, uh, in my late teens and early 20s, I had periods where I thought, you know, maybe, maybe this instrument has gotten the better of me. It's so physical, you can only play it for 20 minutes and then your lips are gone. Or you can play one set while everyone else is playing a second and third set mm-hmm. and, and your, your lips are wasted. Yeah. And I, I stayed with it and I have continued to fall more in love with the instrument, you know, with every passing year. Wow. I would imagine, you know, if, uh, at 10 years old when you started to play, you must have practiced quite a bit because, you know, you essentially began playing professionally when you were, I think, about 12 years old. Is that right? Backing up your father at the Blue Note? Something like that, 12 or 13. I remember yeah. I recorded mm-hmm. with him uh, by the time I was, I think I was 13. And I had been playing, I mean, I was very precocious. It came easily to me. The uh, I was good at math. So the idea of the fingerings, the harmonic stuff, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, anything melodic or creative was not 
was not difficult. There were no hurdles. What was difficult was the physicality of the mechanics of it. Yeah. How to have not even classical technique, but what you'd call sort of proper technique to be able to play for longer than a minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I could do it, but, uh, you know, there are a lot of sort of boring technical reasons, you know, large mouthpieces, um, air support, the, the undeveloped musculature of a 12-year-old, 11-year-old, that, you know, some things that you hit puberty, your muscles um, get stronger, and you're able to just uh, break them down and build them up in a better way and in a quicker way. Yeah. But all those things aside, I... I would practice a lot, but in some ways I over-practiced. Or I had a teacher, I had a great teacher, Jim Hamlin, who, who showed me things. But I think I was so excited about the creative that sometimes I would practice 50 minutes when I should have you know, practiced 30 mm-hmm. and just let the lips rest. So uh-huh. what, what I used to do, I would, I would practice about 50 minutes, get wasted uh, muscle, muscle-wise, and then I would go sit at the piano and I would listen to Gail Evans and Miles Davis and Duke Ellington and mm. Art Blakey and Kenny Dorham and then Stravinsky and then James Brown and then a little Steely Dan. And I would get lost on, at the piano. I would never practice scales, but I would just play anything that I, I would try and play whatever I heard mm-hmm. and play along with records. And unlike the trumpet, before I knew it, two hours had passed. <laughs> so, So I was quickly... Understanding or getting a, getting a, an understanding of uh, sort of what people call a ranger's piano, where you sit right. down and you understand the, the whole the way the orchestra is laid out, and again, never bothering to do finger exercises. So I yeah. never developed uh, you know great piano technique, mm-hmm. but I developed a quirky kind of technique and, and speed where I needed it. And a lot of stuff that I was playing had to do with sort of groove music. Yeah. Uh, either with you know hard bop jazz or, or some Ellington things where it wasn't just about learning Ellington ballads or the soft movements of Stravinsky or Ravel. So the technique it was never really a necessity for me on piano. Very cool. You know, we, we mentioned uh, your father a couple of times, and we've also mentioned Carolyn, but your mother, Donna, was was also a very, you know, very talented singer, but uh, she put her, I think she put her path, her career path on hold in order to raise you and your sister, Carolyn, but what I think is cool is you produced and arranged her debut solo album titled Being Green, which was released, I think, back in 2000 or 2001. And that... It, it was... Uh, we recorded it in 2000. I know because she was 60. Right. I kept mm-hmm. on thinking, this is so cool that... Yeah. Uh, so I'm producing someone... Yes, my mother, but I'm producing someone whose first solo album is at the age of 60. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I was just thinking that had to be extremely rewarding for you. I mean, the, the final product was beautiful. Uh, yeah, I still love that album. Yeah. Um, I don't think I... It was rewarding, but it was... I don't know if I would use the word rewarding. It was, I, I, it was great. It was a lot of fun doing it. I mean, there were one or two moments that my mother and I have joked about where we recorded on and off, I would say, for two and a half three months. And at one point, I came into the studio, and my mom said, so she gave me a stack of bills, like Con Edison bills, and, and uh, credit card statement that had arrived at their house. And she said, I want you to go through these bills. I want you to look at them. They came to the house and said, Mom, we're, we're in a studio paying $175 an hour. <laughs> and she said, are you eating? Are you eating enough? I want, you know, are you? Are you sleeping enough? I said, Mom, we, we, can, we, can we just, can we put this aside? Can we save it till we're not working? 
and it was kind of charming, but people, you know, the, the assistant engineers and everything laughed. They're like, oh my God, you guys are so cute. But I, <laughs> I sort of had to find a way to, to, to maintain the working relationship. Yeah, yeah. And the other day that I remember is, and this is a very, uh, it was a wonderful moment where my, my mom looked upset. I said, what is it? She said, you know what? I, I, you're moving fast and you're, and you're not including me. Oh. And if she wasn't, it wasn't hurt. It was really direct. I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, I want you to ask me. Oh, uh, I want to be a part of this more. And she said, you know, otherwise, I don't know if I want to do it. And that was really, really deep because it taught yeah. me that if you're working with a with an artist and you're trying to get producing, you're trying to get their voice across, yeah. if you cross that line and become a tyrant, and you just push your vision. I mean, there are times when you have to push your vision and just kind of be a dictator, but in the end, it wasn't... What was more important for her was to be a part of it and, and be asked every now and then what she wanted. Mm-hmm. And she gave me so much freedom, mm-hmm. and yet she, she said, I just need to be included a little more. It was an incredible, uh, it was an incredible lesson, because from yeah. then on, I, I didn't treated with kid gloves. I said, Mom, what do you think about this? Do you want to have, is it too much reverb? Uh, do you want to have another instrument supporting your voice? And she, most of the time she'd say, well, you know what, do what you want. I, I, I trust you completely. But she wanted to be included. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was very, uh, very intimate and very wonderful. And I, and I think about that from time to time because it was a great lesson to mm-hmm. not just steamroll over people. Exactly. What a neat uh, key, key learning because I'm sure that we have a lot, a lot of uh, producers and engineers and musicians that are that listen to uh, to the to the show today, and uh, and I'm sure that's definitely one of the rules you don't want to forget. That's that's very neat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does. It, the fact is, my mother is extremely sort of mm-hmm. Freudian, like, and there are a lot of issues there. But but it, it's an interesting <laughs> lesson when it comes down to is to, to be aware yeah. of what it is that the person you're producing what what mindset they're in. Yeah, You know, if you, if you sugarcoat, if you're, and it's not about trying to please them, it's about trying to include them. Mm-hmm. And that is, that, that's really important. Otherwise, what was so beautiful, she said, you know, if, if I'm not including them in this, then I don't, I don't know if I want to do it. Yeah. And that yeah. was so cool because it wasn't about just getting an album out. It was really about finally doing an album for her, and she didn't give a shit. She was 60. She hadn't done one for 60 years. She right. had, she, it, it, there was no reason for her to really do one unless it was going to be mm-hmm. something that she fell apart of, and I thought that was amazing. Absolutely. And I think that's a large reason as to why the album came out so well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, when, when you were um, 16 years old, you crossed paths with uh, Wynton Marcellus, uh, yes. amazing musician. Uh, oh, yeah. How did that happen? You know, I don't even, I don't even know. It was kind of logical. Uh, he, I think the first time I may have met him was I was at Music and Art or LaGuardia High School, and um, he probably was not a part of Lincoln Center at this, mm-hmm. at this time, but Lincoln Center was right next to the school, about a block away. And he came in, I think, he came into the jazz, to see the jazz band play, and I was the, like the, trumpet soloist, and then I was the trumpet player in the quintet. And he, I had won a couple of downbeat student awards, so I think he was, had been told about, oh, you should hear this guy, Michael, plays like 14 or 15, I was, again, maybe I was 16. And he came in, and I remember 
uh, he sat at the piano and I played something back for him. Uh, not like a, hey, hey, here it is, look how cool I am, but he, there was a chord and he had a question and I was able to play it back and it sort of, I think, pricked up his ears and he went, that's pretty cool. Why don't you come over to my house and then have dinner with my family and we'll talk music. Wow. <laughs> and about a month or two later, I went to his place over on, I think, 19th Street. Mm-hmm. And we just, we played and talked music and he was very, he was really wonderful. Very supportive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I run into him every couple of years. I'm actually, I see his brother, Bradford, more often than I see him. But yeah. mm-hmm. um, every time I see Winton, he's still very, very sweet. You know, it's like he's not a close friend, but we, but he's always been great, you know. Yeah. Well, right around the time you were experiencing a lot of things, I'm sure your your talents, right when you were on 16, 17, you were really growing. And uh, when you were 17, you even received a, um, I mean, I believe you were honored as the youngest Grammy recipient in history. And uh, what was what was that for? And um, can you tell us about that experience? That was, I was part of the, the, uh, the McDonald's All-American Band, which mm-hmm. was, oh, yeah. they put 17... Uh, musicians together from all around the country, right. and then from the, from that they decided to pick the most outstanding musician in the country, and they they gave it a, a, a Grammy award, and I was the winner of that one. So um, I think it was the first and only year it was given out. <laughs> really, interesting. Wow. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, you can probably <laughs> Google and find out, but. Yeah. Um, I was presented at a non... It wasn't at the Grammy Award yeah. night. It was a different ceremony. I was presented by Henry Mancini. <laughs> That's great. Wow. And uh, he was totally cool. And, uh, and it, it was, you know, it was a trippy experience. It was... It was and the weird thing is that I was chosen as Person of the Week on ABC News oh, two right. weeks later. Yeah. <laughs> and I was on there with my, you know, super dorky glasses and they, they videotaped me playing, you know, My Funny Valentine in my in the room at my parents' place and, uh, you know, uh, every now and then that video comes up and I have to see myself as a 17-year-old talking about the wisdom of the world and, you know, I wasn't cocky but it was really painful to watch. Well, I think it's a known fact that every musician has to go through a um, a required dorky phase. <laughs> oh, some, some don't, but the ones who don't go through a dorky phase usually hit like fifty, sixty, or seventy, and just long for the days when they were, you know, super cool. So yeah. they don't, you know, this it's, it's we all have. If you don't have a dorky phase when you're younger, then you wind up wearing, like, you know, a leather jacket and having a, a motorcycle when you're 80 and never, you know... Just trying too hard, Never embracing the dog at all. <laughs> uh, you know, when you enrolled at Columbia University, were, I wanted, I was curious, were you there... You know a lot here. It's very impressive. Well, were, were you enrolled as, as a music major? I mean, I understand that you were studying other subjects that interested you, such as, you know, filmmaking and literature. Yeah, I was not enrolled as a music major. I hadn't decided the major yet. I was probably going to uh, go... I was leaning towards French literature or maybe Eastern religion, and I and I think I was going to pick French literature because of the women. There were so many women in all the classes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I like French literature, but it was I just kept on remarking like every class had about fourteen women to two guys. Mm-hmm. So this was <laughs> shooting fish in a barrel. <laughs> um, I'm, of course, not in a highly respectful, romantic way. That's also why you chose music over sports, too, right? 
Uh, I think that's why everybody does, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, con- no concussions in music. You know. Yeah. <laughs> hey guys, let's take a short break, and I want to check out the title track from Michael's 2006 solo album, "The Ballad of Minton Quigley," on Inside Music Cast. Tiger's eye 
landed a, a record contract with Sunnyside Records in 96. And, and I was curious, were you, how did that happen? Were you shopping your music for a label at that time, or, or did they discover you? You know, no, when I, after the Grammy, uh, that would be 90, uh, I think 91 or 92, uh-huh. <laughs> well, this is, this is the time of uh, Roy Harbrove and a lot of when there was a jazz resurgence, thanks to Winton, and yeah. all these labels, Verve, RCA, you know, were signing uh, young jazz musicians who were anywhere from, in some cases, 13, but usually like 18 to 24, Christopher Holiday, Antonio Hart, um, it was like the first wave, even before Josh Redman and Tristan McBride. Okay. So, I there were some record labels, notably like Blue Note yeah. and I think Verve, uh, where I went to see I went to see uh, different A and R people, Bruce Lundvall and Richard Seidel. We mm-hmm. had great talks and conversations, and they said, "You know, Blue Note said, why don't you do a demo?" And I did, why don't you go into the studio, we'll pay for it, do a demo, three or four songs, we'll see how it comes out. And I had, uh, I went in with Ettore Strada, who was, was a, an Italian producer, I think he produced Barbara Streisand, and a and, um, very talented uh, producer who, who was comfortable in jazz, almost like an Arif Martin kind of personality. Yeah, yeah. And we went in and I wrote some arrangements for trumpet, rhythm section, and five horns, but the horns were alto flute, French horn, bass clarinet, uh, maybe two alto flutes. It was, a, it was almost like a very Herbie Hancock late 60s, mm-hmm, uh, like a prisoner sort of instrumentation. And again, we came out with fun, but I knew it as I was recording it. It just wasn't, and it's like the, my endurance as a trumpet player in the studio got the better of me, or the lack of endurance. The writing was very. Uh, mature and and you want to hear today? It's it's great. It's really it's all I look eleven visual Alvin Nelson, but the playing, the ideas were there, but I almost just didn't have the the endurance or the stamina to get all the ideas across. And the Bluenet decided to not go further. Uh, we didn't. They didn't offer a record contract, and I went kept on going, you know, about my life doing stuff. And Sunnyside, my dad had done an album for them, and Francois Zalakine had always been a big supporter of mine. And again, on trumpet, I would have uh, days where my stamina was great. Mm-hmm. And I could play three or four sets, and then I'd have days where I was just, uh, after about 20 minutes, I, I couldn't play, you know, uh, like a, above the middle register. Mm-hmm. So, Francois had heard me live and had heard my writing over the years, and he said, I, I think your playing is wonderful. I think your writing is wonderful. Whenever you want, watch you do something. And he was very patient. And at some point, I had a group, uh, which was almost in the spirit of Chet Baker and Jerry Mulligan or Don Cherry and mm-hmm. Ornette Coleman, which was a, a trumpet, saxophone, bass, and drums, no piano, no guitar, no chordal instruments. Okay. This is when I was at Columbia. We were doing a lot of gigs, and it really, to me, in my bones, it felt like, okay, here's something unique, and I'm ready to do an album. So at that point, I approached Francois. I think, oh no, no, I actually recorded the band on my own hmm. at a place called uh, Acoustic Recording or Broad, Michael Broby Studios in Brooklyn, and I paid for it. And I think I even did a first round mix of it, and I brought it to Francois. And I said, "Would you want to put this out?" And he listened to it and said, "Yes." And that was it. <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> so he was very uh, patient in a way. It was almost, it reminded me of, um, you know, early uh, 20th century Europe where, where artists would have these, um, not donors, but, you know, um, people who believed in them and would fund them. And Francois was very patient. He said, when you're ready, let me, you know, let me hear it. Mm-hmm. And it was a good three or four years before I went to him and said, I think I have something. Wow. So I was definitely uh, attracted to his, his patience, his sort of non-aggressive uh, approach to it. Uh-huh. And we, I put out three albums with him. I don't even know. I, I think there was a signed contract, but it was such a, a familial kind of relationship that he was just um, just a great supporter. Yeah. It sounds like a very interesting relationship there just to have an open door for when the artist is ready that day. You know, I mean, he saw something there and he opened the door and said, okay, oh, it'll come, it'll come. Yeah, and I knew even then that that was, was pretty rare. Yeah. Uh, but I did have the benefit of being kicked around a tiny bit by, by not, you know, by being rejected by Bruno or Verve. And if I now, as a 38-year-old, if I was A&R and I, and I was in the opposite position, mm-hmm. I, would have, I, I would have done the same thing. I would have said, to me, I would have said to a younger me, you have a lot of talent. Um, there are certain things you want to, you should get together. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a technique, you know. Um, but, but it was the right thing. If I put out an album, it probably would have been just a mediocre album. Yeah. And that's never been, you know, a desire of mine. Right. And you were 21 at the time, and, and we're, of course we're talking about the, your first solo album called Artvark Poses, correct? Yeah. Yeah, interesting. You know, uh, about a year later, something pretty extraordinary happened, and you were recruited by, of course, Steely Dan. Oh, the Army. Yeah, <laughs> by the Army, yeah, exactly. You know, how, how did you, uh, you know, when, when Steely Dan and, of course, Donald and, and Walter, uh, you know, came, how did they discover you? Um, you know, I had met... Donald in passing in a club. He and I were, were in the interviews we did for something kind of, he remembers all this stuff, but I had met him and Libby Titus at the lane. Libby brought Donald to see my sister. Like she was singing with a trio. Uh-huh. And I was very young, but I uh, was well aware of Nightfly and Mr. Dan catalog. And at this point, only the Nightfly had, had come out. And I, uh, I said hi. He was shy, didn't say much, but was, was, was still friendly. And it was probably four, five, maybe six years later that... Oh, no, I had been with Chris Potter, a saxophone player in Washington. We were playing a show, um, and he got a call. He never got to believe who called me. And this is before the, the, the days of cell phones. So we literally had to let's meet in the lobby at like 545. Uh-huh. And, and he went up to his room, and he came down and said, I just got a phone call in my room from my girlfriend saying that Steely Dan called asking me to audition. <laughs> and that was probably 91 or 92, in uh-huh. anticipation of the reunion tour, in 92 and 93. Right. So I knew that Steely Dan was, was being reformed and going out again. So fast forward to 95, they were talking about putting together a, a, a new band. And they wanted to mix up the horn section they had uh, they'd had three saxophones, so now they want to do uh, trumpet and two saxophones. So I got a call. I think it was because of a guy named Scott Barkham, who at the time was Donald's um, studio manager, assistant manager okay. at River Sound. And Scott knew my playing just from the New York scene. He was a keyboard player. 
and he knew my sister singing. And they were at the studio one day, and, and Donald also said, well, we need a new band. We need a trumpet player and some singers. And he said, well, you got to you gotta check out the Lenhards. And I think that's how it started. And so wow. we got a call from the manager. Can you send some stuff to here? But there was not an uh, in-person uh, audition. I sent Bhagavad poses, and Carolyn uh, sent some uh, CDs of her singing, maybe some live things, I don't know, some studio things. And the wait began. I remember I was very excited, but I, but I didn't. I was patient. I mean, I, of course, I was eager, but uh, it took about a month, and I got a phone call saying, Donald uh, and Walter really love your playing. They're going to take a little longer to think about things, but just want to let you know they listened and they really love it. So then I was going, okay, well, that's good. But yeah. you know, well, <laughs> about a month later, I got a call. Um, what they are considering, still not a definite, would be, would, would you be available if they, um, if they choose you for a summer tour in 1996? I said, I, I will make myself available. And I was 22. At the, I was maybe 21 when it came in. I said, what the hell am I going to do this better than this? Sure. And about two and a half months later after that, there was uh, a phone call. You know, I would call every now and then and say, hey, you know, would you have an answer? And somewhere in between the waiting, they said they also love the tennis saxophone player on, on your album, on Our Poses. So four and a half months after the initial call, uh, I spoke to the manager and said, we want both you and Ari Ambrose to be on the tour. Wow. And that was it. We both, uh, wow. we both did the 1996 tour. Yeah. And you're still with them. <laughs> yeah, and, and I really did assume that I would probably get fired after one year. <laughs> I, I knew yeah. their, the, the legacy. And, yeah. And I thought, you know what, that's cool. It'll be one fun year. Um, I'm sure I won't last that long. And I felt very free to do whatever I wanted to do, create, you know, to, to play within the, the rules that they provided. But I was wearing, you know, I had a wah-wah pedal. Um, that's what the solos I would click on. I think I had them, like, there was a clean mic, and then there was a 57, a short 57 that would go, it was wired to go into a wah-wah pedal. Uh-huh. For some of the solos, I played trumpet throw solos through a Wawa pedal. Interesting. Really? <laughs> back, like, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> but they they kind of loved it. Yeah. And I was playing, I had like a whole rack of, you know, like tambourines, and I just went, I was swinging for the fences, which I guess it's kind of nice that I was so free. Yeah. Um, but I remember Ricky Lawson on drums would look over at me and be like, what, are you, what drugs are you on? <laughs> like, hey, just have a good time. So uh, I, I thought, yeah, I'm getting fired. I may as well have a good time this summer. <laughs> and in the end, 16 years later, Carol and I are the only ones left from that. Jeez, that's amazing. Everyone else has been replaced. One person died. Yeah, that's it's right. Pretty, it's pretty crazy. Wow. Well, you know, as you mentioned a minute ago, Steely Dan was out of commission for was for such a long time, you know, up until the oh, early, I heard, yeah. up until the early nineties, and you know, um, you know, they they started touring again, then and getting back into the consciousness of their fans. And I was just curious about, you know, prior to joining and their touring band, and I think you might have mentioned their name earlier in the interview, but had you been a fan or studied their music? Yeah, I, I my dad was a huge fan of Steely Dan. Okay, so the albums I remember uh, driving in the car, my dad would put on. Eight tracks of a lot of lot of jazz, but also James Brown, Shaka Khan, Earth, Wind, and Fire, uh, Steely Dan, and Doobie Brothers. That was his. <laughs> that was his yeah. taste. Yeah. 
And I remember hearing like Larry Carlton play uh, like a 13th sharp 11 chord, and I said to my dad, what is that chord? And he said, well, son, that's a dominant 7 chord with 13th sharp 11. And I said, well, how do you know that? <laughs> and we'd be driving the car, and he said, you know what, you, if, you, if you start listening to it, in about a year, you'll know all the stuff by ear. And yeah. and we sat down at the piano, and he would. Play, my dad plays like nice, uh, you know, for a bass player, he plays sweet piano where he'll he can outline all the chords. It's, he only uses about three or four notes, but it's gorgeous. He almost yeah. he plays piano like a rhythm guitar player, like uh, Freddie Green or something. And I would say it's amazing you can go from a C7 to an F7 to a B7 to an E7 so quickly. And he said, again, if you sit down and just learn this slowly, let's have the same conversation in a year. You'll be a better piano player than me. And I said, oh, I don't think so. will ever. And I would sit down in my room and just play piano, or he'd get a Juno 60. I'd play it all, all the time. <laughs> a year later, he said, well, that's it. You're a better piano player than me. Hmm. And it's very sweet. Wow. So I remember hearing those early, you know, the Royal Scam in Asia uh, specifically, and just being fascinated by the. Um, I was too young to, to sort of delve into the lyrics, but I loved Donald's voice, and I, I just thought the music was so interesting. And I was very young, but it still grabbed me. Yeah. Interesting. Hey, Michael, you've recorded seven, uh, around seven solo albums, and each one is so unique in its exploration and musical personality, and we want to just talk about that a little bit because they're pretty much uh, just, you know, me and Rick have been talking and sort of absorbing your, your, your work, and, and we're, we're sort of loving it. We're all over it, and we can't put it down. So, I mean, you, you, um, your first album that we talked about already— you know, of course, was Aardvark Poses, but it was followed by a 2002 release, Slow. And, um, no, there was one before. Oh, it was? Glove, 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 glove. glove. That's right. That's yeah, right. That's, that's right. right. Okay. Um, you know, I, I do want to talk a little bit about, about Slow because you collaborated um, with a Steely Dan bandmate, John Harrington, who's been a guest of ours in the past, uh, to produce, um, you know, as, as your caption says on iTunes, the perfect CD for the morning after party. <laughs> I, wow. love, I love that. You know, but it's it's a really um, it's not just full of normal ballads. It's a, it's an eclectic mix of sounds, and uh, I found it very captivating. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, this project, Slow? Well, I think after I knew after the uh, Glove Glove, which was so huge mm-hmm. with so many instruments and so many little, you know, almost like a Sergeant Pepper's, but right. like a jazz Sergeant Pepper's or a Bitches Brew, that I wanted to sort of switch gears and do something that was closer to a duo album or something very intimate and very sort of honest. Mm-hmm. And I thought uh, trumpet and guitar could be beautiful. And I wasn't sure who, and then I was sitting on the back of the bus, I was getting it in, bus in 2000, and I heard John play, uh, I think, Young and Foolish. He had transcribed the Bill Evans and Tony Bennett version of it, and I went, oh my God, I, I knew he could play the <laughs> the lead guitar and rhythm stuff for Steely Dan, but I didn't know he had a jazz sensibility, almost like Cal Farlow, Jim Hall, or, or Wes Montgomery. So I said, would you want to do a solo album, a duo album this year? And he said, absolutely. So we started putting together songs, and, and I, you know, I, I didn't want to do something that would be potentially boring. <laughs> so I thought maybe uh, like a third of the songs, we can do a little bit of... Um, have a bed and then play over it. 
yeah. to expand the palette. And I, I can't remember which songs, but I know there were a couple things. Uh, the first tune, the song Slow, we, we went a little bit outside of the original idea of just doing uh, a live, uh, you know, two-instrument duo album. Yeah, yeah. But we tried to keep it sort of sounding honest so it just wouldn't sound all over the place. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to admit, I hear that album quite a bit because my son... Uh, when he goes to sleep, he always listens to music, and he requests that about twice a week. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. So I hear it spilling out of his room, and, I, and you know, sometimes it's not so easy to hear your older albums, but I hear that one, and I look at my watch, like, hey, not too bad, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, your jazz appetite definitely uh, in the feelings sort of bleed through on this project. And, of course, you know, just listening to the hints of Chet Baker and Miles and how they all... Mm-hmm. I mean, you can see how all of this is sort of pouring out of, of a guy that's absorbed an awful lot of, of, of jazz, you know, in his, uh, in his upbringing. So this, this, is, this was a very refreshing album. This is nice to hear that. Okay. And from Michael's 2002 release, Slow, this is a track called Azure from today's guest, Michael Linhart, on Inside Music Cast.
Hey, I want to jump ahead. I want to talk about um, the Susie Lattimore EP that you released. In, well, I you think. guys have really done your homework. Huh? <laughs> no, I, this is one that Eddie and I have been. Oh, Eddie and I both love this one, and I, I love it especially. It's, I do too. It's it's an EP. It has only five tracks, but every track is so listenable. And and I don't know, maybe for a lack of a better term, it has kind of a vintage quality. And it, and it and I mean, I, I know you saturated the project with sort of a Beatlesque vibe, and it uses you know like Wurlitzer Rhodes, even Moog synth lead lines that you know I don't know. It, it it's just such a cool blend of, of sounds. And 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 uh, are you is that you on vocals? That's the only question I have about. Yes, that's me singing. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah, I definitely recommend this one. To check this one out, Eddie and I both. That's we've been. Uh, <laughs> that's that's the one. Every time we talk to each other about this project, that's one we we really mention. Oh yeah, so. I do. And you know, and I I, I always bring out uh, you know, gee whiz, this guy put some Moog sounds that sound like you know Emerson Lake and Palmer at the one of the tracks. And I'm like, this is, this is just <laughs> yeah. beautiful. I mean, it takes you all over the 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 classic sounds, and I think this is a um, this is one that we highly recommend for all of our listeners today. Pick this EP up. You will not go wrong at all. But uh, yeah, and I think most of those songs, maybe the one or two that didn't appear. Did you guys get the, the ballad of Minton Quigley? Yeah. Yes. That um, <laughs> I think a few of those later appeared on a ballad of Minton Quigley, and I, and I left off one or two. And those two albums, I mean, the, the Susie Lattimore is in many ways the most pop of anything yeah. I've done. Right. Yeah. Right. So far, and and I, my wife keeps on saying, oh. You know, would you do something like that? And I said, I'm totally open to it. I just, you know, you have to have great songs to to pull something like that off. Yeah, you know, it's not. Uh, you can't just do it, but like, it takes time to write songs like that. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, but I do. I still love that one. There's something really kind of accessible, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way. Mm-hmm. It's something. You know, I hear all the time, oh, I love Better Place, oh, I love Susie Lattimore. <laughs> well, Eddie and I, are, I guess our most intriguing question is, who is Susie Lattimore? <laughs> Susie Lattimore is a nickname for my dog. Oh, it is? <laughs> yeah. So, cool. uh, you know, in the spirit of, of Paul McCartney's Martha, my dear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, this is, it was, let's see, 2006. Maybe, and I think our dog was two years old. He was a mini dachshund <laughs> named Norman, <laughs> and um, we just called her. You know, we we came up with a hundred nicknames for her when we were on the street, and she's running. And you go, Susie, Susie Lamar. <laughs> I don't know how, but we just that was one of the names. We, uh, that's great. It's funny. You know, in in listening to this uh, project, uh, you know, the Ballad of Min- Minton uh, Quigley, you know, we've tried to describe, man, you, because you, you, like I said earlier, the al- your albums have such different qualities and personalities. And we uh, we sort of concluded that we describe, uh, you know, Minton Quigley as cinematically theatrical because it, it really fits – you know that that uh, cinematic feel, and after, it almost makes you want to to watch the movie. I wish this was, you know, oh, I hope yeah. the Ballad of Minton Quigley was a movie because <laughs> it fit perfectly. You know. <laughs> oh wow! Thank you. Hey, you know, Michael, this is you've written for film and theater also, but um, you also have written uh, for the arts, meaning you know, television, dance, even fashion shows, and so on. H- how do you approach writing with creative interpretation? For example, you know, a dance and fashion show. Have, you have, to, I figure, you'd have to be very conceptual with that sort of approach. Well, fashion. Uh, let's start from the fa- fashion shows are probably. I only I did it once or twice, and it's. It's tough because it's pretty, you know, you're a lot of strong opinions there. 
and in the end, there's not a lot of room for subtlety. So that's, uh, you just kind of got to do it and make, you know, if someone's walking down a runway, you got it has to be something that makes makes people want to shake their ass and buy clothes. So, <laughs> but theater, theater and independent films is usually in documentaries. There's a lot more room for uh, experimentation and, and stretching the sonic palette and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. depending on the vision of the screenwriter or the director and the producers, you sort of get a sense of where it's going to go. The One of the most incredible things that can happen to a film composer is to find uh, a director that you can really collaborate with. Mm-hmm. And for me, in the last couple of years, I've, I've joined forces with a composer named Andy Bush, and he and I have, have formed what we call you know, Bush Lenhart. Or Andy Bush and Michael Lenhart. Okay. Where we you know, sort of attack the scores together and do them so as to enable us to do larger Hollywood films because in in 2012, when you're doing, to do a large score, it it is so all-encompassing dealing with huge budgets or middle-sized budgets, directors, in some cases, Mm -hmm. multiple producers who all want their way, that they have an ally um, whether it's writing cues together or saying there are going to be 22 cues in this movie, why don't we split them up and you can focus on 11 and I'll do 11 and we'll do some together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really sort of empowering to, to form an alliance like that. Yeah. Um, the, the truth is writing music for film can be, it can be like navigating, you know, um, rapids in, in a little boat. There's a lot, um, it's an amazing art form and there are a lot of egos to have to, to you know, to, to deal with. If you can find uh, a like-minded, creative mind, you're one step ahead of the game. Yeah. Because I've, I've been a lifelong fan of films. You know, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Fellini, Woody Allen, you know, vintage Woody Allen. Absolutely, yeah. Kurosawa, everything. So it's, it's one of the most incredible mediums. It's like modern opera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, Michael, I, I do want to speak uh, to ask you a question about one of the most important, <laughs> really incredible projects that I've heard in a long time. And it comes off of uh, uh, your Seahorse and the Storyteller project. Mm. Uh, it, it's a masterpiece. It's, and we've had actually some Facebook uh, uh, questions regarding uh, Avramina 7 and how mm. this all came to be. I mean, if anyone's ever heard, uh, I guess on YouTube, uh, Google, um, you know, this performance – at uh, I believe at Joe's Pub is that correct? Um, yeah, that's right. It's it's an amazing <laughs> uh, performance. It's a live performance, two thousand nine. Uh, but tell us a little bit about this project and uh, Avamina uh, Seven. The Avamina Seven came about from my. It really came about from my uh, connecting with musicians in two thousand. There was a bunch of musicians in Brooklyn and in and in Manhattan here. Mm-hmm who would later go on to be the foundation of Adaptone Records and Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings and Auntie Ballas and Charles Bradley and uh, Menahan Street Band. There are about 35 or 40 of us, uh, young musicians, anywhere between 20 and 40, who had a real um, authentic love and respect for, for old-school soul and funk. Uh, James Brown, The Meters, mm-hmm. Joe Tex, all the things out of Stax Records, out of yeah. Muscle Shoals. Um, and the bar was 
really, I mean, some of those guys would say, oh, Stevie Wonder, he's not funk enough. And we'd go, whoa, 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 whoa. But they <laughs> really loved hardcore funk. Uh-huh. And these guys all started uh, putting together, I played on a lot of um, the albums, and I had been playing with the guys from Antibalas, and we were getting into Stella, uh, Stella Kuti, and, and mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, 60s and 70s funk. Yeah. And wanted to do, wanted to, to, to use these guys on an album. And there was a bass of um, the rhythm section of Homer Stein, Weiss on drums, who's just incredible, one of the most incredible drummers I've ever heard. He just has his, he sounds a little bit like Ronald Palmer, mm-hmm. you know, or Al Jackson from Booker T and the MGs. And some other guys, Tommy Brennick on bass, Nick Mofsheim on, on Actually, Tommy Bennett was playing both guitar and bass on this, and Nick Mopsham was playing, I think, some bass and percussion, and these guys had a sound and a feel that was ridiculous. So I had recorded, uh, I was writing songs, and used uh, all, for the album, used all of them, a couple of, uh, Dave Guy, who was a wonderful trumpet player, who was a trumpet player with Sharon Jones and the Dad Kings and Manhattan Street Band, and... There's a heavy sort of African psychedelic, you know, feel to to the series and the storyteller. The album was always intended as part one of a three part of a trilogy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so it, it is a concept album. I always thought I'd do a film or something about it, and the thread that ties throughout the whole album. Um, I had another ten to twelve songs that I had started. Uh, ready for the for part two, but I was just in the middle of working on Donald Fagan's album and touring and having a son and also, you know, thinking about sure. maybe I would take a little break and uh, the next album would be song, like more pop songs in the style of uh, Susie Lattimore. So I always intended to do parts two and three, just, you know, I haven't had the time yet. Hey guys, let's check out a track from the Susie Lattimore EP. And this uh, this is definitely one of my favorite tracks in the on this EP. This is Mr. Venus.
we've got just a, a little bit more time here with you, and I we really wanted to touch upon, uh, of course, this Donald Fagan uh, Sunken Condos album that you uh, co-produced, and and uh, you know having now worked with Donald for over sixteen years, um, you know he certainly knows your talents. Obviously, you have a rapport, but tell us, you know, how you got involved or how he pegged you to help co-produce this album. Well, he. I had always said to him, you know, when he was doing uh, After the Two Against Nature, well, he he and Walter had, had asked me to write horn arrangements for that, and I did some more for Everything Must Go. And then when he was doing more for the Cat, I said, listen, if I can ever help in any way when it's producing, just let me know. And he said, yeah, okay. And <laughs> he was into it, but not too into it. And, yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, kind of let it go. And then we did more things, and around 2000. Nine or 2010, I, I said, how's it going? I've been writing songs. I said, you know, my author's still there. He said, well, okay. And, <laughs> and one day, she wants to come over and listen to some things. And I listened to three demos. He said, why don't you try... He had heard me play drums at sound checks um, before yeah. the band got on stage. Right. And he said, why don't you... You know, he knew I had a studio. He said, why don't you just try, uh, you know, playing the drums on the stuff? I said, okay, sure. So I said, no, I could just mock something up, and if it's good, you have someone uh, come in and replace it, and they'll just kind of get a feel for it. So I did it, and uh, spent a few days doing it, and had something I thought was ready to hear. And I sent it to him, and he, and <clears throat> he said, oh, this is, this is really great. Why don't you do, uh, you know, hey, can you try this? Do another take like that? And why don't you try another song? And uh, I said, okay, cool. And he said, this sounds really, really great. I kept on going, and I told him some ideas that I thought he, now he played me six songs, and then he had 13 songs. <laughs> and he said, what do you think? I said, uh, you know, maybe it should be uh, nine or ten songs. And he said, what do you, th- do you think some should be left out? I said, let me listen, and I listened to some. I said, I think those uh, those three can be left out, and uh, we can include, let's go with these, ten or eleven. And I was sort of helping steer the boat here. And now I had helped him pick the songs. I'm starting to craft. I said, are you going to lay down any uh, demo vocals, scratch vocals? And he said, nah. I said, all right. And, you know, it'd be helpful. And he said, nah, we don't need it. <laughs> so we kept on going. And we getting deeper and deeper inside each song. And I had started making notes to myself about what I thought the, the, the rhythm section palette should be, where uh, background should be, and yeah, he had given me lyrics for all the things. And then I, about three months into it, I saw on, online, I think it was the Associated Press, it said, uh, Michael Lenhardt is helping me produce the new album. <laughs> and, he, and I said, okay, I, guess, I showed my wife, I said, I guess she wants me to produce it with him. <laughs> That's how you learn about it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, things started. I mean, I, I then I knew I felt very comfortable that he mm-hmm. wanted my input. And yeah, we have a long friendship, and I felt comfortable saying, you know, let's just have a little clarity. How involved do you want me to be? How opinionated do you want me to be? And he would say, you know, just feel it out. And so I took that to mean, okay, I'm going to do everything. I'm going to do whatever I need to do. And increasingly, month by month, I became more involved to the point where I just took off all the filters and would tell him what I would think. And likewise, uh, the opposite. It really grew from just sort of this uh, helping with a couple tracks, all of a sudden saying, you know what, I think you need to do another vocal. Uh 
I think we're going to need to cut out a couple bars here. I think, you know, what is this song about? Um, why is that there? Really uh, approaching like an equal and, and challenging him where necessary. And he likewise would challenge me and go, well, why do you want to put that, you know, mm-hmm. that up there? Why do you want to put that top of five there? And I said, because I think it would sound great. And he goes, you know, I did that before. No. I said, okay, well, how about mini mode? He goes, yeah, that's cool. And it was a real, it was a real collective, and that's yeah. that. That was exciting to me because I had worked with him before as a ranger, as helping to get his vision across. But here, he was asking for my vision. That's neat. That's very cool. I know it was. I was ready to give it. I mean, you know, I'm, yeah. I have humility, but I also have Americans, and was more than happy to just jump and say, "Here's what I think." Well, you know. A few months before the album was released, or maybe a couple months, there were rumors flying around that there was there was not a live drummer on this album, and that it was yeah. it was all programmed. And and uh, I, you know, we've obviously you just mentioned a second ago <laughs> the story about how you know uh, he, he Donald kind of d- dug your style, your drumming style, and and of course you laid down some some. Uh, some early tracks, but then, and, and obviously we know there's live drums on it now, but so the question I have is, are all of the drum tracks on the album primarily live, or were there, was there any programming at all? There's no programming. I mean, in, in the sense that I know it, it was uh, many, many takes, and uh-huh. editing, and, co- and combining, using every every possible, you know, technique to get the, the feel. The, the idea was to have it be as human as possible, and to right. keep as much as possible. It was very similar. We had talked about like the way he approached stuff with James Gatz and on the Night Fly and and uh and just trying to get these incredible takes and there was no you know, he was open to we tried to keep that technology to a minimum. But um but the goal was always to keep as much as possible. But it was I mean it took a long time to get yeah. those takes. But that's always been his his method. But I get emails once, you know not once a day, but a couple times a week from drummers going, what kind of symbols did you use? What did you do here? What's this? What's, you know, it's on, you know, drums on a Steely Dan or Donald Elvis uh, hold a very special place in this, in this country, in this world. <laughs> you know, people are fascinated. And also, you know, I have to, uh, I, I come across some very nasty stuff online. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's got an opinion. So. That's right. That's right. You know, you know, this could be asked of any project uh, you've produced, but I would imagine a project, even if it's, you know, even one that's not your own, in this case, maybe Donald's, for example, you know, it can become almost as personal to you uh, as it is to the artist you're producing. Are there times when uh, someone else's project becomes personal to you, being that you're so deeply involved that, I mean, h- how do you, uh, you know, how do you um, somehow find a way to maintain a, an emotional distance? Um, I don't. I don't know that I do. I think I get very, uh, very involved. You know, it's, it's, it feels, it starts to feel like uh, one of my own albums. Yeah, yeah. Um, that I'm sharing with someone. I mean, there are differences in the case of, with Donald, they are his songs. Yeah. So there's definitely one degree of separation. Mm-hmm. You know, if I worked on it for almost two years, he was working on it for almost five years. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, there are times when, once we had all the tracks together, there were weeks on end when he didn't deal with the stuff, and I was dealing with it all the time. Mm-hmm. So it was just, you know, there were a lot of things uh, with editing horns and editing tracks and putting things together and pre-mixing where Donald 
wouldn't be there and I would be here and I would go home and my wife would go, oh my God, you've been working for eight hours and now you're going to sit and find just doing, you know, getting it all ready. And it, it really does feel um, very personal. Sure. Um, there's a difference, there's a difference in uh, my bones when it's when I'm producing an album that's not mine and when it's my own album, especially mm-hmm. when I'm when I'm doing an album where I'm singing, there's something extremely personal. Yeah. Something very uh almost vulnerable. And every now and then I'm able to tap into the, the uh to I mean I, I do produce my own stuff a lot of the time, or almost all the time. But every now and then I'm able to separate um in the case of my own albums separate the producer from the, the artist and it's actually very useful because I can take out all the uh, sort of the vulnerability and just approach it and make very clear, strong decisions that yeah. aren't personal. Yeah. Uh, when I'm producing someone else, I know that, they, that the, the artist themselves is probably occupying that vulnerable personal space where sometimes they don't want to hear it too much. Um, they're on the brink of going, you know what, this is just, maybe this is just really awful. And especially when you're dealing with pop music, where sometimes it has to have a certain extra level of, of punch to it, of, uh, you know, that pop element, where um, the production needs to be kind of stellar. That can mean taking mm-hmm. extra days, extra weeks to do it, and, you know, the human brain can get exhausted. So, as a producer, sometimes I like to put that responsibility on my shoulders. The artist doesn't can stay fresh, mm-hmm. you know. So there are all these different sort of hats and places. I do know that when when an album, especially something like Donald's, that took a long time, a lot of emotional investment, a lot of, you know, we moved very slowly, and I learned with Donald and from him how to move very patiently to get. You know, the takes. This was an interesting album because we did it on a smaller budget. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, the the challenge was how does how is Donald going to make an album that sounds like classic Steely Dan yeah. on a modern day budget? And I realized that yes, he's always worked in in high fi studios, and we did go to places like Sierra and Avatar. Yeah. Um, but I also learned that if you take time to find to to make a room sound uh, sonically pure and you make the signal path uh, as rich as possible, then the rest is about uh, waiting and uh, for a great performance, having great songs, mm-hmm. getting things beautifully balanced in the mix, yeah. having drums and instruments sound just the right way. That it's, not, it's not just about uh, having a huge budget. Right. It's about taking the time to really make smart decisions Absolutely. have it sound right. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, Michael, uh, Sunken Condos, um, it did involve you, of course, uh, your sister Carolyn, but your father, Jay, was also involved on several tracks. And, of course, um, Carolyn has been working with Steve Dan and Fagan, of course, many years, as we know. But was this the first time for your dad to be uh, working with, uh, with Donald? Uh, he had worked with him. He did something... Um, I think it was piano jazz with Donald and Walter mm-hmm. uh, with Mary McParland. Did that about I think six or seven years ago, and they played together on that. They of course knew each other uh, socially, but he had never <clears throat> recorded with Donald. And oddly enough, he did. Uh, there was one track on the album that my dad played rhythm bass on, 
and we, we threw it out. So I actually had to tell my dad at one point, uh, remember, you know, he said, I'm, hey, it's going to be cool, I'll be on Donald's album. And I had to tell him that he wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't like telling him that he got fired, but I had to tell him, you know, I, that track, I'm sorry, man, but it's not going on. And I told him, and he got it. I mean, he as, as a very experienced musician, he had been to the, he had gotten fired for things for no reason. He had had tracks, you know, be put in the vault and not go out on an album. So he, he said, you know, I get it, I understand. And about a week later, uh, one of the last things we recorded was um, the overdub for a new breed. And Donald said, you know what would be great? He said, I need something like, uh, like In Cold Blood, Quincy Jones, that kind of ba-doo, like a rhythm, a high acoustic bass. And he said, your dad would be perfect for it. Is he around? I said, yep, I'll, I'll give him a call. And it was Donald's idea. And uh, I said, Dad, do you want to, uh, this is not a, a pity call. We really want your services. Are you available? I said, yeah. And he came in, and it was one of the last overdubs. We did it while we were mixing. And that is the, um, that kind of right channel, um, obligato bass part. So mm-hmm. in the end, he, I, I basically fired him and then hired him again. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hey, Michael, we're just about out of time, but I just wanted to mention one track that Eddie and I both particularly love on Sunken Condos. And, and, and one of the things I love about it most is, is the horn arrangements, and that's Miss Marlene. Yeah. And it's, mm. it has such a great feel. It, 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 and I, I, well, of course, I love the lyrics. <laughs> I, when I first started, I, I didn't have the lyrics. Eddie and I got like a, a promo version of the album before it came out. And, and I thought, is he saying, Miss Marlene, we go bowling. We're still bowling every Saturday. Is he talking about bowling? <laughs> I cried. Right. When I learned it was bowling, I thought, I'm not crazy. It is bowling. And I thought, this is great. It certainly is bowling. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just a, the horn arrangements were fabulous on that. And, you know, this album really has a, a kind of a mix of a classic Steely slash, you know, Nightfly sort of vibe to it. And and I, I don't know. I mean, I think I've read somewhere in an early interview that you gave somewhere that uh, – I think Donald's idea originally, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, was not to really sort of capture that feel of past albums, but sort of find something new. Yeah, Donald does, it has no concern for anything retro. Right. And and I, I really get that. Yeah. Um, I, I'm torn between loving some of my favorite albums are from the period of 1976 to like 1982. Yeah. Oh, me too. A, you know, the certain sound. So, so how do you how do you hold that? You know, like uh, that's the sound that I'm. I'm like, I see her from a storyteller has like a uh, you know late '60s, early '70s sound, and Susie Lattimore has maybe an early '70s kind of like you know yeah. Paul McCartney solo album mm-hmm. sound. Yeah, yeah. And to me, I've always loved that when Donald is is backed up by something of that sort of vintage or that you know timbre. So you can't just go retro, yeah. but I always love the sound of those drums, I, the, yeah. the way that the roads sounded, the way that the uh, the basses and the guitars sounded. Yeah. I, it, to me, it's an essential part. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't. I mean, a lot of things Donald would say, "No, it's not right." He he would allow me to to find sounds, and I would say, "I think we should use this." Um, when the guitar players would come in, I would help them get the sound, and I was very hands on. You know, and then Donald would say, nah, it's not my or I don't like it. You know, I tried to use a, an electric sitar on one track, and he went, no way. <laughs> 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 so, 
so um, you know, I, I do love uh, I love the sound of behind the motherfucking condos. There's some, you know, each track has a little moment that gives me goosebumps. There's something about New Breed that really feels like the Nightfly. Yeah, but I don't know if it was uh, intentional. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yep. I mean, I've heard things like people said that sounded like a lost album, like some of the tracks <laughs> sound like Asia outtakes. Well, one thing for sure, we all know that the collaboration uh, on Sunken Condos, it was a great mix. And, you know, we uh, we know that your ingredients, whatever you inject in this project, you know, it is Donald's album, but it goes far beyond that. And uh, and we can hear your work, your heart come through this uh, the project. And I think, um, you know, everybody on our Facebook page uh, who listens to Inside Music Cast, they're, they're just immersed in this album. It's a wonderful project. And, and sort of oh, con- congratulations to you guys. For a great work. Thank you very much. Well, your questions were, were lovely. Very, you know, very thoughtful. Yeah. Well, Michael, thanks so much for spending time. I know, I know we went a little longer than you'd expected, but we really appreciate your time. Yeah, we really do. Sounds great, guys. All hey, right, well, take care. Thanks a lot. Okay? Right, have a great night. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Special thanks to Michael Linhart for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Reith, and Scott Sheriff for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast.